Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. If you've missed any episodes of Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the golden EIB microphone, you've missed more great stories from some of Rush's closest friends, family, and colleagues. All previous episodes are available now on iHeartRadio or wherever you listen to your podcast. On this episode of Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the golden EIB microphone, we'll be speaking with two industry icons, Michael Harrison of Talkers Magazine and Phil Boyce, who was the program director at WABC in New York when Rush was there and was the PD who hired Sean Hannity, currently VP of Spoken Word for Salem Communications. Whether you listened every day, you are at the EIB Network and the Rush Limbaugh program heard on over 600 great radio stations. Or every now and then. Nation's leading radio talk show, the most eagerly anticipated program in America. These are the stories you've never heard from the people behind the scenes who knew him best and loved him most. Rush Limbaugh having more fun than a human being should be allowed to have. Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the golden EIB microphone. Hosted by James Golden. Through the Stand Up for Betsy Ross campaign, you changed the lives of dozens of hero families in need. The campaign benefited the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. Tunnel to Towers builds mortgage-free smart homes for our nation's most catastrophically injured veterans and first responders to give them their independence for Gold Star families and fallen first responder families with young children. Tunnel to Towers pays off mortgages in full for these families and provides them with the comfort of a home when their world has literally been turned upside down. And thanks to this campaign, the Stand Up for Betsy Ross campaign, you have seen to it that we have been able to send a charitable donation in total of $5 million dollars to tunnel the towers. Your kindness, generosity, and patriotism brought hope when it was needed most. But more of America's heroes and their families need your support. Donate $11 a month to Tunnel to Towers at T2T.org. That's the letter T, the number two, T.org. First up, the founder of Talkers Magazine, Michael Harrison. Now, Michael, you've you've interviewed Rush Limbaugh. You interviewed him early on. But before we get to that, I'd like you to tell our audience how it came to be that you publish the leading magazine for the entire talk radio industry. I had a background in trade publishing and in broadcasting. And I've, I've, I've always led a double life or a double career of being involved in the trades and also being involved in just about every end of being on air or managing or I even owned a radio station. I've been a program director and I've been a, a personality and I've been involved in music radio and in talk radio. In the trade arena, I was involved in the um, development of radio and records. I was its first managing editor when it started. And, um, 
had also worked with Billboard magazine and uh, published a couple of uh, newsletters and tip sheets along the way. So, uh, and, and I was doing talk radio on a rock station in LA for 11 years. And I, I always felt that when the 90s would, would come, this was during the 80s, that the 90s were going to be the decade of talk radio, that talk radio was going to become the dominant form of radio. So I wanted to do it professionally as a broadcaster. And I also wanted to be involved in it as a trade publisher. So when uh, 1990 came around, I decided to take all the experience I had uh, in both uh, on-air management and trade publishing and put them into a trade publication that dealt with talk radio back in 1990 as if it were the talk radio industry. We called it the, the industry, even though it was just at that time, basically a small portion of the radio industry. And uh, fortunately, I was right. And that was 31 years ago. Talkers Magazine is still operating and, and still thriving, thank goodness, uh, for which I'm very grateful. And, and it's extremely gratifying. When did you first meet? When did you first become aware of Rush Limbaugh? How did that happen? I heard him on the station that I had owned um, shortly after I sold the station. They put Rush Limbaugh on. I'm driving down uh, Route uh, Highway 91 in Springfield, Massachusetts, and I hear uh, on my former station, the one that I owned, um, this is Rush Limbaugh. And I go, who the heck is that? <laughs> it was like... I, I, it's like the first time I heard Elvis Presley. I remember that. I'm that old. And, and I remember the first time I heard the Beatles. I remember the first time I heard Rush Limbaugh on the air. And it just came through the speakers like a ton of bricks. That, that voice and, and that whole ownership of the airwaves, the ownership of the air. And that was the first time. And, and of course, being a, a student of the industry, I, I had not started Talkers yet. So I, I was in the process of thinking about it, obviously. Um, I, I, I asked, who, who is this Rush Limbaugh? First of all, the name is funny, Rush Limbaugh, you know, and, and, and similar to Elvis Presley. When he first showed up on the scene, the name sounded very funny. People were making fun of it. They called him Elbow Parsley, you know, Rush Limbaugh. And, um, you know, you become used to a name after a while. And uh, we're certainly used to the name Rush Limbaugh now. But that's how I first became aware of him. And uh, it's very interesting, the evolution that followed in terms of syndication during the midday was not something that major market radio was very quick to do. That was considered to be um, very daring to put a syndicated program, program on in the middle of the day. And Rush talked about that, by the way. He was told at the time, this is never going to work. It's not going to work. Radio stations will not pick you up, et cetera. But he went ahead. And and he and Ed McLaughlin. Did you know Ed McLaughlin? I, I, I subsequently knew Ed. I did not know Ed personally. He was a, a major executive at ABC Radio. So being in the broadcasting business, I knew who he was, but I had not yet met him or interacted or done business with him. But I certainly knew who he was. And I knew that um, his starting a syndicated venture after leaving ABC was something to be taken seriously because he was what we call in the business a heavyweight. And um, obviously he was. So... Let's let's advance. You you hear him. This is before you started Talkers Magazine. Correct. Follow your own evolution as a listener. Well, I certainly uh, understood the need to fill a void because that's what I, I, I call that pos positioning. And in, in radio, positioning is everything. And so it immediately struck me that his approach to uh, talk radio from the conservative perspective especially with humor. In many ways, he was sort of what on, on the right, what John Stewart was on the left. Heavy use of satire, heavy use of humor, heavy use of production and entertaining elements and, and parodies and wordplay and double entendres. Uh, so he was very entertaining and filled a void because talk radio was political. It was post-fairness doctrine, so you could be opinionated without being too restrained by fear that you'd be censored or censured by the government. And uh, I knew right away 
oh, this take, this makes total sense. There's a, there's a giant market out there for conservative politics because let's face it, most of the media was either moderate or liberal and conservative politics was marginalized as radical, far right, very negative, pejorative. So I knew right away, this guy's got it all. He's positioned properly to fill the political void, politics being the major topic of interest on news talk radio, and he's entertaining, and he sounds good. His, his mechanics were that of a really seasoned top 40 jock. He knew the mechanics, and I'm very, very into mechanics because I just love radio. So I, I knew this was a guy to watch. Explain what you mean, because we have a lot of people here that are not radio people. So when you say mechanics, okay, what what are they talking? What is he talking about? What is mechanics? Well, you know, people think you just get on the radio and you sit there and you spout your politics, you spout what you want to do. But radio is a symphony. Radio is a combination. It's a continuum of elements. There, There's music and there's uh, commercials and there are breaks and there's timing and we're working our way up to the clock. And uh, at one o'clock, we've got the news and then we'll be back. And there's it's a whole dance of... Uh, 30 second elements, 10 second elements, 60 second elements, uh, bed music. Um, there's a pacing to it. There's a, a, a sound and a texture to it that DJs who came out of the 60s and the 70s and the 80s inherently knew how to do. It's it's the reps. It's if you want to be a pianist, you have to learn how to make your fingers work on the on the piano. If you want to be a baseball player, you have to do batting practice. You have to you have to learn how to throw, how to catch the basic mechanics of of an entity. And radio is the same way. So and, and and you can hear it right away. Rush played the continuum of sound, the symphony of a sound of a radio station or a radio show. Uh, as one of its elements, he knew how to integrate his voice into that flow. I know it sounds esoteric and maybe I'm overanalyzing it. No, but- you're not. Because this is one of the things that Rush, Rush talked about this on occasion. He would talk about it, but, but he wouldn't talk about it in depth the way that you are now explaining it. What he would say is that radio is theater and you have to understand just as, as an actor would. Or, or someone in the theater business, you have to understand the theater. You have to understand, and, and, and there are no visuals. So what you have is the complete con- attention of someone who's listening. It is an active process to listen to somebody as opposed to look at something while you're busy doing something else. Absolutely. And, 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 the theater is a perfect analogy. When you go into a theater, there's the curtain, there's the the chandelier at the top of the roof. If it's a if it's a classic old theater, there's there's the whole atmosphere of the theater, and then the lights go down. And then if it's a musical, the orchestra comes up, and then the curtain opens, and the lights start. It, it's not just somebody standing on a stage talking to you. There's a whole environment, and the actor or the writer, or each of the elements, finds its place within this whole, you know, montage of synchronized entities. And Rush brought that to talk radio. So it was like listening to a music radio station where the station's format was part of the program. It was, it was actually part of the show. The format was part of the show. He did that in talk before anybody else. And um, that is one of the things that made him successful. Obviously, he brought content and, and, and a lot of intelligence and other things to it. But that was the first thing I noticed was his position politically, that he's filling a gap. And, and that's good for democracy. And that's good for radio, because people that feel left out, disenfranchised, hungry for that type of a point of view, empowered and, and franchised as opposed to disenfranchised, they would like that. But they're also radio listeners, and a radio listener knows when they're hearing the radio that it's not television. When you hear a television soundtrack on radio, it doesn't sound like a radio station. It sounds like there's something different about it. It has a hollowness to it. it this was full radio, and that voice, it just was the right package at the right time. But I definitely think that his mechanics, back to that word, were one of the pillars upon which his success was built. AM radio was in trouble at that time. People were wondering if AM radio would survive. Talk about that for a moment, please. 
AM radio was in big trouble. And as I, I think Chris Christopherson wrote in the Janis Joplin hit, Freedom's Just Another Word for Nothing Left to Lose, there was nothing left to lose. FM radio was eating AM radio's lunch with the music. It just didn't sound as good. So here's what happened. AM radio, first of all, radio fans, post-war baby boomers, uh, knew how to use radio. They grew up with radio and they knew what AM radio was. So they, they were not strangers to the dial. Um, talk sounded good on AM. The aforementioned fairness doctrine was repealed, which means now you can talk about politics and have opinion without having to hold back for fear that uh, you're not giving every side proper exposure. And that's impossible to do because there are more sides to sides than anybody can believe. It's very subjective. So, so rather than be fair and have more points of view on the air, radio station said, we're not messing with this. They just never talked about anything controversial. That was gone. So controversial politics suddenly was, was fair game. The post-war baby boomers that grew up with pop radio and AM rock radio um, were getting older and suddenly interested in politics, suddenly interested in taxation, suddenly interested in, in, in various aspects of freedom, of um, government, of uh, community, uh, education, uh, health care, public safety, foreign affairs. Uh, all of these things suddenly were of interest to basically the same audience that grew up listening to rock and roll. Uh, the, the demographic shift had happened. They were getting older. So suddenly the audience was, was there for that. And the thing that Rush did and that talk radio did was it um, provided uh, the listeners with something that was important in their life something that was more than just background it was it was heavy duty it, it, it had teeth it reflected the culture and radio to succeed going all the way back to the beginning unlike other forms of media had to be hip grassroots the 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 sound of the street uh, the everyday person and uh, rush accomplished that and, and and as a result it kept am radio alive and I think to a certain extent, it kept all of radio alive. Not only are you my professor, but you're also a friend and a mentor and somebody that I've looked up to and I dare say a hero uh, due to the values, the, the true life values that you've expounded out there. I remember many years ago, you spoke to being able to get a job and you talked about the different levels and what's required and whether it was a high school, college education. And I think that the top level of that had something to do with integrity and respect. And I think that those are parts of values that you teach out there that are invaluable. And I just, I'm thankful that I've been able to experience you for all these years and many years to come. Well, I thank you very much. You know, I'm, I'm always flattered and deeply appreciative when I find out how detailed people's listening is. And you have heard the details. And they've obviously made an impression on you. I, re I remember many of the times, not all, I'm sure, but I remember many of the times I've talked about getting a job versus finding a career versus becoming productive versus finding what it is that you are born to do. We are all born to do something, including be lazy. Uh, some people just have to find what, what they were born to do. And it's a rewarding thing to get calls like yours. I, I deeply and, uh, and profoundly appreciate it. In each episode, we've been documenting the story of Rush's life, narrated by some of his closest friends and colleagues. This week, a good friend of the program, a good friend of mine, the actor, the director, and he was a guest host once on the Rush Limbaugh program, none other than our friend, Nick Searcy. The Life of Rush Limbaugh, Chapter 11, narrated by Nick Searcy. After the election of Barack Obama in 2008, Rush Limbaugh was immediately concerned for the direction America was headed. As he intuitively sensed the growing loss of freedoms and liberty to come over the next eight years. And as the end of the Obama regime neared, Rush's listeners trusted him more than ever as conservatism's most vocal champion and opinion maker. 
as a well-known businessman, a non-political outsider, started gaining steam in a long-shot bid for the Republican presidential nomination, Rush made clear where his priorities stood. Whatever you think I'm advocating, it's not because I care what happens to the Republican Party. I care about what happens to America. And I know that any more of what we've had the last eight years, it's going to be America, but it's not going to be the America you and I know. As then-candidate Donald J. Trump took off on a meteoric rise, the mainstream media and political pundits were dumbfounded by his success and his refusal to play by the usual tired set of rules. But Rush knew early on that Trump was different and why he connected with the American people. He's real. He isn't phony. He's not politically correct and he's fearless. He's not afraid to tell people what he actually thinks about other people or things. Trump is showing that the things the Republican Party is afraid of are baseless. They don't need to be afraid. With his signature insight, Limbaugh told his listeners why the experts were failing to understand the man who was promising to make America great again. Despite the scores of critics and doubters, Trump never gave up, and he campaigned relentlessly right until the early morning hours of Election Day, November 8, 2016. So it's now officially Tuesday, November 8th. Did you ever think you'd be hearing a major speech like at around close to one o'clock in the morning? Are we crazy? And as America came alive the next morning, it discovered Trump had shocked the world with a decisive win over Hillary Clinton. For his part, Rush became one of President Trump's most vocal advocates throughout his presidency and the 2020 election. He saw Trump as a uniter who would be good for America in the long run. He is out trying to get as many people in this country as he can to join his movement. He's not trying to lose. He's not trying to clean things up and make the party something that it isn't. He's trying to rename it, reshape it, so that it is a party of victory. And what's the slogan? Make America great again. America first. Everything he's talking about is real. The outcome of the last presidential election of Russia's lifetime didn't produce the results for which he had hoped. And if the world ever needed his insight and commentary, it does today, more than ever. But if you listen close, even though the golden EIB microphone sits empty, through the speakers of radio stations across the country, you can still hear the man we knew and loved for more than 30 years. The voices offering their opinion on the radio now may be different, but the footsteps in which they follow, undoubtedly, belong to Rush Limbaugh. Hey, James Golden here. You know what? It's time that you treat yourself to a little bit of luxury. You know the company. It's MyPillow. But what you may not know is that MyPillow makes more than just the incredible pillows that have captivated America. They make sheets. And these aren't just any sheets. These sheets are smooth. They're soft. They're comfortable. You'll look forward to getting under these sheets every night. I know I do. My Pillow Giza sheets have a luxurious feel you're going to love. Get yourself the luxury. Get a set of these sheets. They come with a 60-day comfort guarantee. Pillows, sheets, don't forget the incredible slippers from My Pillow. They're available from My Pillow. They have a level of comfort you need to experience. Log on to mypillow.com. Click on the new radio listener specials and use promo code ICON. Lots of incredible offers there now. That's MyPillow.com, promo code ICON. Back with Michael Harrison. Michael, when did you meet Rush? I met Rush, uh, It was I think it was, I met Rush on the telephone in 1990 when I interviewed him for the second issue of Talkers Magazine. Um, but I met him personally, I believe it was 1991, at uh, the National Association of Broadcasters Convention in San Francisco, in which he and I were on the same panel. And um, the panel had a couple of other people. I think Ron Owens from KGO in San Francisco was on it. And the conversation was, or included, is it possible for a national syndicated personality to 
to appropriately put in midday on, <laughs> on, on a major market radio station. That was the issue. It was that outrageous. And um, the audience was a little hostile to Rush and very positive about Ron Owens. And um, I believe the moderators were Ken and Daria Dolan. And I was on there as the the observer. Talkers was only one year old at the time, but fortunately we already were very popular. And I was the, I was the impartial observer. Um, and that was where I met Rush Limbaugh. You know, one of the things that um, I've thought for years is that so many broadcasters, and not just broadcasters, it, it's because as you know, this is an industry that, to use a political phrase, trickles down into other areas. Mm-hmm. Jobs are not just created in a radio industry. You have the jobs that come from advertising. You have all the jobs that come from the advertising support. And it goes on and on. So Rush coming in and, and, and doing what he did for radio at such a critical time, one would think that there would be this swell of appreciation for it. Yet you mentioned there was a little bit of hostility. What did you attribute that to? One, a lot of people in the business felt he was taking away jobs because, um, I don't know, maybe there were 100 stations, 50, 75, 200. It was far less than today um, during the original ascent of uh, Rush Limbaugh and what I call the modern era of talk radio. So a lot of a lot of radio personalities felt he was taking away their jobs. There was the feeling that it was sacrilegious to have something that wasn't local on a radio station in the middle of the day. So there was hostility toward that. And I have to say that at that time, most of the ownership and most of the um, people in the radio business were of a moderate to liberal bent. And they found his politics offensive and uh, disagreed with it. So the combination of what they perceived to be taking away jobs, which which mathematically turned out not to be absolutely true. And we could talk about that if you want to. But um, there was hostility from an industrial standpoint in terms of the economics of it, the aesthetics of it in terms of local versus uh, national. And uh, politically, um, it, it, there wasn't a fully developed conservative constituency within the the radio business. Um, and and one of the interesting things, James, that happened uh, in that encounter, because I was on the panel with him and we also had dinner together. Um, I had dinner with Rush and the Dolans, and that was a very interesting dinner. But I had an encounter with him in the hallway. Um, we're standing, it was just the two of us. And he looked at me and he said, Michael, I have a question I want to ask you. Maybe you can give me an honest answer. I said, sure, Rush, what? He said, how come people don't like me? It blew me away. It blew me away when he said, how come people don't like me? Like, like, like today in the panel, I just get the sense that people in this business don't like me. I think he then, you know, specifically pointed out is in this business. And I, I looked at him and I said, hey, they're jealous. <laughs> don't worry about it. Because <laughs> I knew this guy was, was heading for stardom. I mean, it was just obvious to me. I've always been prescient about that type of thing. And I certainly was in that time. But I said, don't worry about it. They're jealous. But he was very, the thing that I learned in that moment was that he, even though he's tough and, 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 and uh, you know, has teeth, as I said before, in terms of what he did on the air, Personally, I got the impression that he's a very sensitive individual and was first coming around to understanding what it was like to be a public figure, even though the public in this case was in the industry, who who meets with tremendous resistance and enemies. And I think it shook him up a little bit. You know, that is really an interesting observation. Let's And, and you mentioned before the jobs. I do want to hear what you have to say about that. Well, he did take jobs from people that would be local on the stations that he was installed at. But conversely, he created more stations as a result of the success he brought to the format. Right. So he may have taken one job or two jobs from each station that existed when he first emerged on the scene. But as a result of Rush Limbaugh, hundreds of radio stations across America turned to the talk format, which created countless jobs from management to sales to on air to engineering. So I sat down and figured it out because it was a major issue. The guy's taking jobs. He's not taking jobs at all. He was making jobs in terms of the total sum of his impact. Michael, here's the here's the the money question, as it were. Uh oh, what is 
the legacy of Rush Limbaugh in the radio industry and beyond, will there ever be anyone that does what Rush was able to do by way of accomplishment in this industry? I certainly hope somebody comes along and gives a shot in the arm to this industry going forward that would be equal or greater than Rush, but I doubt that's going to happen. I do believe there will be other media, other platforms, other chapters of history, and other great movements. So, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a believer in the future, and I'm optimistic. But in terms of the time and space, uh, the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century uh, that Rush Limbaugh uh, operated in, I think his legacy will be that he was certainly one of the the greatest, I'm not talking about whether I agree with him politically, just one of the greatest broadcasters of the first 100 years of radio uh, and a major figure in keeping radio iconic and pertinent. And I believe uh, also he will go down in history as being one of the most influential leaders of the modern conservative movement, the American conservative movement of the late 20th century and early 21st century. And that's a hell of a lot. It really is. Let me give you my view for a moment on, on some of this. You know, I, when I first started with Rush, he was the first radio host I had ever heard that integrated email, this new thing that people were using. And back then he was using CompuServe, he used to give his CompuServe address out, invite listeners to, to, uh, to, to be in contact with them and in real time during the show would read some of those emails and respond to them and integrated that. in. well, of course, today we have this direct messaging all over the place, instant messaging. And now it's text. Now it's instantaneous that you can get through. We have entire social media platforms built on interactivity. When Rush started and, and, and as the show became what it was, it wasn't just radio. Television changed. What you mentioned about radio and the ownership was certainly true of television, too. There was no conservative space on television for conservative politics. That has changed. The publishing world has changed. And that happened after Rush, too. So my own view is that he is all of that and more in radio, but his impact on electronic and print media is sometimes not recognized. What, what do you think about that? I think you're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, as you were saying it, I'm going, yeah, I missed that. That's, that's definitely part of it. He definitely was a catalyst for our evolution during the aforementioned time uh, from the analog era to the digital era in terms of communications. And that, of course, goes way beyond any of the uh, individual media platforms that uh, we've cited. It really ties into uh, a, a rapid jump ahead in terms of the wiring of the human nervous system. I mean, the way we're wired, the way we think, the way we are, ties into this analog to digital transition, which he did play a major role in, in catalyzing. So yeah, I agree with you fully. Michael, this has been a real treat. Um, you and I have known each other for quite a while, um, and you are just an incredible force in this industry. We, you know, it, it's amazing that you, your passion, and you, you were equipped. You were born to do what you're doing, apparently, because you had this dual interest in radio and in trade publications, and you were able to execute both of them flawlessly. And thanks to you, you have, we have now an informed media. You are doing something unique and you've done something unique in this industry. And you are just one of the giants. And so it is certainly our honor and pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for saying that. I really appreciate it, James. And um, I wish you and everybody associated with that great chapter of broadcasting history the best going forward. Thank you. This whole experience, not one bit of it is work. Not one bit of it. It is all just more fun than I've ever had in my life. It is absolutely no hardship whatsoever to fly around the country to see people, to be on the radio or any of that. You enjoy my show, and I appreciate that, more than you'll ever know. I don't want to beat this into the ground. I'm sure you've all felt like you weren't going to ever amount to anything even though you knew you were capable of it. I felt that way. The only difference between you and me is that I'm up here and you're out there. 
And the only reason I'm up here is because you're out there, right? It's true. You may enjoy my show, but I'll tell you, you people, especially you people, you don't know it, so I'm going to tell you, you rejuvenated my life because a successful radio person is not a success simply because he does what he does. People have to listen to it, appreciate it, and support it. And everybody in this room has. I mean, for me, six years ago, to be mired in loneliness and aimlessly walking through life and then to come here and have tickets sell out in two hours? My friends, that hits me in the heart like nothing you can ever imagine will. Well, today we are so pleased to have a man. His title in the business is about a paragraph long. He is, he is, and I'm only going to read one sentence of it. So the rest of it, you know, would take about a half an hour. Phil Boyce, the senior vice president of spoken word for Salem Media Group. Now, this is, I think, impressive on a number of levels. Salem is a competitor. But yet, Phil is here with us. And Phil, welcome. James, thank you so much. It's an honor to be on with you. I think I met you in 1995 when I joined uh, WABC as program director. Uh, the station at the time when I got there was the most listened to news talk station in the nation. And I'll never forget sticking my head around the corner and seeing you sitting there at the control seat of the EIB network with uh, Kit Carson, and I think it was Brett Winterbull. It was like looking into the Starship Enterprise and seeing uh, Spock and Kirk and Zulu sitting there. <laughs> and you guys were at the center of the universe. I mean, you, at that time, this was 1995, so you'd been doing the syndicated show with Rush for, I think, seven or eight years. You guys were the top of the world at that time, and you stayed there. That was the amazing thing. You stayed there for a long, long time. Now, you already alluded to the, to Rush when you came into WABC and you saw him. The, what was it like the first time you met Rush? Well, I want to go back to the first time I heard Rush coming out of the speaker because that's a Kennedy-like moment for me. I remember where I was and what I was doing when I first heard Rush Limbaugh coming out of the speaker. So I was the news director in Denver of KHOW, K-H-O-W, and I'd worked the morning shift, so I was driving home in the middle of the day, and I was in the car right next to the Wilshire Hills Golf Course when Rush comes out of the speaker. Apparently, somebody was on vacation at KOA that day, and Ed McLaughlin convinced them to try Rush for a day. Wow. Well, I was immediately blown away. I mean, this guy was saying things that I had been thinking in a way that I had never heard anybody before. And back at KHAL, we had been thinking about going talk. We were still playing music back in 1988. And uh, we, we just didn't have the right talent. We needed horses to do it. And I drove back to the station, went into the GM's office right that moment, and I said, turn on KOA. you got to hear this guy. He's the guy we need to get to build the station around. So he did. And he liked Rush. And he called his boss, the president of Viacom, Bill Figgenshew, and he asked Bill Figgenshew, could we grab this guy, Rush Limbaugh? Apparently, he's available. And Bill Figgenshew said, you know what? That guy's not going to make it. He was my roommate when we were both rock jocks at KQV in Pittsburgh. And he was a slob. He left half-eaten pizza in boxes around the apartment. I don't think he's going to make it. No, you cannot do that. He's not going to make it. Well, of course, we know the rest is history. Uh, but, and, and Bill Figgenshew was a nice guy. He just missed it. A lot of people missed it on Rush rising uh, like he did. But, you know, uh, stations that picked up Rush back in the day uh, would get massive complaints from listeners who just hated Rush. But what they didn't understand was that every time somebody hated Rush, two or three or four people fell in love with him. And by the time they started looking at the numbers, he was just like on fire. So by the time I got to WABC, and I was so honored to be the PD of a station with Rush, I mean, I, I was in Detroit for four years trying to get Rush off the other station, and they were so loyal, they wouldn't move him over to WJR, even though I was a 50,000-watt flamethrower and he was on a pea shooter. They were loyal to that station. And uh, I always admired that about how they built the, the Rush Limbaugh network, 
they were very loyal to those that went with them at the beginning. Wow. And so now you're at WABC. You're the program director at WABC. This is the flagship station, by the way. It was the flagship station, the most iconic call letters, perhaps, in the radio industry. And here you are, program director, and Rush Limbaugh is the lead show on WABC. Now take us, what was it like, your first interactions with Rush? Well, the thing that amazed me about Rush was how humble he was. And uh, I'll never forget walking down the hallway to his office to stick my head in and ask him about something. And I said, you know, I'd only been there a few weeks. And I said, Rush, I just have to tell you what an honor it is for me to be the PD of WABC where you are our lead, lead pony. And uh, this has been a dream come true for me. I've been an admirer of you for years, and now I get to work with you. And, you know, he was embarrassed. He was humble. Uh, he didn't react the way I expected. Uh, and, and I saw him like that on many occasions. Here's Rush Limbaugh, the king of talk radio by that time. And he was always a little bit embarrassed and shy to be given that kind of high praise. And I admired that about him because... Uh, he didn't take it for granted. He, he knew the, the humble beginnings he had. You know, here is a guy that had been a rock jock. I mentioned Pittsburgh. He had been a rock jock seven different places and fired seven different AM rockers. And I think he was probably fired because he wanted to talk. He didn't want to play rock. He wanted to talk. And the PDs said, drive him crazy. And they would eventually get tired of his talking and fire him. Until finally, one day, somebody said, you know, you need to be on a talk station. They put him on in Sacramento. My, uh, the PD there is a friend of mine, Tyler Cox. He's the guy that put him on in Sacramento. I think it was KFBK. And uh, he just took off. He took off like gangbusters. So, uh, yeah, it was a joy and an honor for me to, uh, to work with Rush. And working with him in New York. Do you recall any story that stands out about the experience that just stands in your mind as this maybe the singular story? And I'm sorry if I put you on the spot with that one, Phil. No, no, you didn't. I want to tell two stories. But uh, the first one uh, is what happened to me at WABC one year into my 14 year run there. So uh, wait, I wait, wait, wait one second. Hold on one second, folks. A 14 year run at any radio station for a program director is an amazing feat. I just <laughs> wanted is. to insert that in. It is. It's like a hundred years in dog years. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and look, I, I'm convinced one of the reasons I lasted 14 years was because I had Rush Limbaugh. Because with Rush Limbaugh, you could tear the station down to, to nothing as long as you had Rush, you could rebuild it around Rush. And you know why I know that? I did that. So, and, and it did take five years to build WABC back. I didn't know if I'd get five years. You know, they, they treat us like NFL head football coaches. They hire you one year. They expect Super Bowl the next. It took me five years to rebuild the damage that we had done and uh, bring in the talent like Hannity and Levin. And we got back to the most listened to news talk station in the nation in 2001. And it was that year that I told Sean Hannity, we want to syndicate you after Rush Limbaugh. And I'm convinced that it's because of Rush Limbaugh's success, we were able to syndicate Hannity. And before long, Hannity became the fastest growing syndicated talk show host in history. Uh, because what happened to Hannity was amazing because we syndicated him on 910. And you know what happened on day two of Hannity in, in syndication, 9-11 happened, 9 and Sean knocked off Dr. Laura a hundred places in six months. So he became the fastest growing syndicated host in history. Okay, Phil, so one question for you as time quickly uh, evaporates. What do you think Russia's legacy will be, not just in the radio industry, but in the larger sense for the country? Yeah, I think he'll go down as a uh, icon of our time. Uh, I think he will go down much bigger than just uh, the the guy who redid talk radio and relaunched talk radio or or the grandfather of talk radio. I think he'll be a an icon of our time in his wisdom, in his knowledge, in the things that he said that resonated with people. 
the thing that I always will never forget is people who hear Rush for the first time say, he, he's saying what I'm thinking and nobody else is saying it. For the first time, when he came on the scene, we realized we weren't alone, those of us who thought this way. And today we need that kind of wisdom more than ever. Uh, we'll never forget Rush. We'll never forget the legacy. We'll never forget what he taught us. And we'll benefit from it for many, many years to come. What was it like for you when you saw Rush being uh, given the, uh, the Medal of Freedom Award by President Trump? Well, I admit I teared up a little bit because I realized first we're, we're getting close to the end for Rush. I don't think I realized that till I saw him there. Uh, you know, he had just come out, I think, of rehab or, or some kind of cancer treatment when he went up on, on the platform there at the Capitol. And, uh, but to see them give him a standing ovation, and I know uh, the Democrats didn't stand, but the Republicans did and showed him so much praise. But what really amazed me, well, I, you know, I talked about the humility of Rush Limbaugh. He was genuinely uh, touched by that. And that I will never forget. Here's a guy who had it all, but you could still bring him to tears by giving him uh, a much-deserved honor. And that meant a lot to a lot of people. Well, speaking of an honor, Phil, this has been a real honor for me. Uh, you have been one of the most incredible success stories of our time in the radio business. And more importantly to me um, than all of that, you are a great and decent human being. You treat people with respect. You treat people with kindness. You can be a demanding boss when you have to be. I know this from experience. <laughs> but even in those circumstances, you do it without being demeaning and without making someone feel bad. And let me tell you, there are so many bad actors in that people come across during their careers, it is truly a pleasure and an honor to be, to know someone that's really one of the good guys, and that's who you are. Wow. Well, now you're making me feel embarrassed, sort of like I made Rush feel embarrassed. I, uh, I really appreciate you saying that. Uh, you know, you never know in this business. You know, we joked about 14 years being 100 years and dog years as a PD in this format. You never know when they're going to call you in and say, that's it. Here's a box. Put your stuff in it. Uh, and security is going to escort you out. You really don't. And for me to be still in this business, still doing what I get to do, uh, it's just an honor. And, uh, you know, look, I give credit to God. God wanted me here. He gave me this career. And I'm honored to do it every day. And uh, thank you so much for what you said, because, James, you're the same way. I mean, you're you're one of the kindest, most decent people I've had the privilege of working with in this business. So let's let the good guys succeed. Amen to that. Thank you so much, Phil. We really appreciate you ha having you here. Thank you, James. What is American exceptionalism? It's not that we're better people. It's not that we're smarter. It's not that we have an advantage because of our geography, because we clearly don't. But what what is it that sets us apart? And there's one answer. And it's found in the Declaration of Independence. We are all endowed by our Creator. So we acknowledge God as a country. When we were founded, we acknowledge God, that we were all created. We are all endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. Undeniable, they're just there. And they come from the Creator among them, but not just life. Liberty. Pursuit of happiness. Well, that's pretty simple to me. Those three things, the acknowledgement of our creation by God, a loving God, that our creation, that our, that our spirit has this natural yearning to be free and to be happy, and that there's nothing wrong with either of those. There's nothing wrong with being created, nothing wrong with being happy or trying to be, and there's certainly nothing wrong with living. It was that codification that made one crucial thing possible. And that is for ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. Not the smartest, not the brightest, not the well-born, not the richest, ordinary. This is a nation that became the greatest 
nation in human history, however many hundreds of thousands, billions, whatever years you want to say we've been plodding the, the earth, ordinary people accomplishing extraordinary things. Thanks to Michael Harrison and Phil Boyce coming up on our next and final episode of this series loaded with special treats. First of all, the broadcast engineer for almost the entire length of the Wrestling Ball program, our good friend Mike Mamone joins us for a few moments. Plus, we're going to share the thoughts and words of many of those in Russia's world whose voices you already know because they sat in the seat. They were the guest host on the show. If that weren't enough, we have a very special VIP guest who will share his thoughts on Rush Limbaugh, none other than the 45th president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, will join us for a few minutes as well. All that in our jam-packed final episode. Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the golden EIB microphone, is produced by Chris Kelly and Phil Tower, the best producers in America. Production assistant Mike Mamone, and the executive producers, Craig Kitchen and Julie Talbot, our program distributed worldwide by Premier Networks, found on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This is James Golden. This is Bo Snurdly. This is James Golden. I'm honored to be your host for this and every single episode of Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the Golden EIB microphone. Thank you for being with us. Have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on, but we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening.